1: I'm your host, Perseus Poku. On today's episode, um, I'm so excited. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, God's crime scene, and I'll explain in a few seconds. Uh, but a uh, couple of years ago, we had the privilege of having Jay Warner Wallace uh, to come on the show and to talk to us about Cold Case Christianity and that book it's a it's an excellent book uh, dealing with proof for God and and things of that nature and this subsequent book dealing with God's crime scene again uh the lord has inspired him to use some of his uh, detective expertise uh along with some sound apologetical me- methods to help us to defend Uh, The reason for God's existence. So uh, we want to welcome Brother Jay Warner Wallace to the show. Welcome, Brother Wallace. Hey, thank
2: you so much for having me. I look forward to talking to you again. That's only been up maybe a year or so, a year and a half ago. That's right. Talk about the first book. I know. Be back. Yeah, it was fun. Um,
1: My first question is: How is this book uh, different from your Cold Case Christianity book?
2: You know, in some ways we all write books that just trace our own personal journeys. And when I was an atheist at 35, kind of sifting through the evidence and the Scripture to, to determine whether or not I should trust what the New Testament had to say about Jesus, I did get to a place where I felt like, you know, I, I'm really comfortable and confident in the reliability of these documents, given the kind of test I might give them. But the problem you have is... They're talking about a guy who rose from the dead. And
1: that, you know, for somebody
2: who had a philosophically natural presupposition like me, right. I wasn't willing to accept that aspect of the story. So I would have said this is some form of historical fiction, but there couldn't, this couldn't be true. This part couldn't be true. And so that kind of caused me to take another step. And that second step was simply this. It was, hey, um, do I have a good reason to believe that my presuppositions about naturalism were actually true, or maybe, or was I assuming something that wasn't true, necessarily, and that really colored the way I saw the, 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 the New Testament. So I really had to go back and take a second step, which is to say, okay, do I really think I can account for everything in my worldview? evidentially, as a philosophical match, as an atheist? Do I, is, or is there some, or really, is, is supernaturalism this idea that, that there's something more than just the space, time, matter, and the laws of physics in the universe that uh, stands outside the universe and, and, and has created everything and has guided everything and might even be capable of intervening in a natural universe? Is that even a reasonable, because that was the thing that was keeping me from from looking at Jesus as anything more than just a simple preaching rabbi. And so that was the second part of my journey, and I'm kind of covering that in this second book. So that first book is really about, uh, do we think that the New Testament documents are reliable? That's really the first one. The second one is really about, well, what is the case for God's existence in general? Or, you know, it's really attacking and looking directly at whether or not naturalism, atheism, can explain the universe we live in.
1: And to those that are listening, um, God's crime scene, this new book that brother Wallace have written, and I was sharing with him off air that it's an excellent read. It, it really helps us to better digest the arguments and some of the evidence for why God exists and some, um, some of the things we can look at to recognize his fingerprints. So my, my next question to you, brother Wallace mm. is in the book you talked about when you first started out, uh, that you thought the universe was closed. So can you you talk about that particular uh, reference in terms of the universe being closed and how you realize that it's not closed? Well, so
2: a lot of what we do, and we uh, as homicide detectives, is we get called out all the time to scenes that are death scenes. We call these DBRs, dead body reports. You get there, there's a dead body. Okay, now there's four ways to die. Only one way is uh, is murder. You can die accidentally. You can die naturally. You can commit suicide, and then of course, you can also be murdered. So the question we usually have, the very first question is, is well, do we have a murder here? Because if we have no murder, we're not going to work it. It's a totally different category, and and so we have to determine whether or not this is 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 murder or or something else and how we do this one of the simplest uh, things we do and I don't know if people have ever really thought about this and even some of the detectives that I train and police officers I train haven't necessarily thought of it this way until you kind of show them and that's this if, if, if you really, the question is can I explain everything inside the room by staying inside the room. If I can, it's probably not a homicide. So for example, if I've got a, a, a gunshot injury and I've got a pistol in the room, but, but that pistol belongs to the victim and there is no evidence an intruder has been in the room and all the fingerprints and DNA in the room uh, come back to the victim, including the DNA and fingerprints on the gun, well then this is not going to be a homicide because I can explain everything in the room by staying in the room. This is an accident or a suicide. Now, if on the other hand, that gun is not registered to him, and it's got foreign fingerprints and DNA on that gun, and, and there's actually a sign of an entry, and there's footprints leading, you know, bloody footprints leading out of the room, well, that's very different. I cannot explain those things by staying in the room for an answer. I have to go outside the room for an answer on that one. And that's when you have good reason to believe you've got an intruder and that someone has entered the scene from the outside. So if we took the same approach to the universe and we mm. simply said this, Can we explain everything we see in the universe by staying inside the room of the universe? Hmm. If we can, then some form of naturalism, evolutionary processes involving space, time, and matter, the laws of physics, the laws of chemistry can explain all of it. On the other hand… There are things in the room that cannot be explained by staying in the room. Well, then you have to go to the most reasonable inference of an intruder, and that 's kind of I think a good uh, kind of a template that we can use as we I, I actually identify eight pieces of evidence in the room that everyone has to explain whether you 're a philosophical naturalist and an atheist or whether you 're a believer of any stripe you 've got to explain these eight things and and I think they're they're reasonable for us to explain, and as you examine them, I think it does point more reasonably to a source, a first cause outside the room rather than something inside the room.
1: It reminds me so much of uh, Thomas Aquinas' uh, five arguments, but you, you modernize it and it makes the, those principles plain. So I do appreciate that as well. Uh, can you share with us the questions that detectives ask as it relates to causation?
2: yeah you know the first thing we 're going to do is, is kind of think about well you know there's there's several there are several issues in the crime scene involving evidence. You know, the first book I did was really person-centric, and sometimes you have cases that are centered on people and their testimony, right? And so you, you gain a skill set related to interviews. You gain a skill set related to witness reliability, and that's kind of the stuff that I talk about in the first book. But but here we have the beginning of the universe, or we have a, a universe in which we don't have any living eyewitnesses you know, that we can go out and, and interview. So what you have to do here is something different. This is true kind of crime scene Profiling, where you come in and you look at the evidence in the crime scene and you try to get some idea of having no idea who the suspect may be, but you have the evidence in the crime scene, and now this is a crime scene-centric investigation in which you're really looking at evidence in the room to try to tell you something about who might have been there. And, and that's what we're doing here. And one of the first things you have to do uh, with any piece of evidence in a crime scene is ask you know, some questions related to causation. Uh, what I mean is the first one is kind of, well, how did this originate? How did this piece of evidence originate in this room? What brought it here? Has it been here all along? Was it here before the crime occurred? Is it from the victim? Is it from an intruder who came and left it? And then, of course, the next question in that sequence is causation. Okay, if it is something that originated at some point in a sequence of events, What caused it to originate? And Mm -hmm. the third point would be explanation. So you go from origination to causation to explanation. So this is kind of the stuff that we do with every single piece of evidence in any crime scene. And what we're going to look at in, in God's crime scene in the book, the very first piece of evidence we have to look at is, well... The origin of the universe. You know, before we can, some people would say, "Hey, we've got a room with some evidence in it, but we have to explain how the room got here." Right. So so this is one of the first questions we're going to ask. And does this tell us anything about? A first cause. So I do think origination is one of the, we, we start with that in the first chapter and I think it is powerful. What I try to do is to give you a set of principles the detectives use dealing with evidence and then apply that to each um, chapter's uh, theme. So you're going to get a, a cop story at the beginning of each uh, chapter with some skill set you're going to have to use as you kind of walk through that crime scene or walk through that sequence of events and then we're going to take that skill set and apply it to something in the universe to see how uh, transfers and that's kind of what this whole principle of this book is
1: and the book is so um, dynamic that we are also are blessed by your artwork to, uh, which helps us to better understand some of the uh, arguments that you're making so uh, again, if you're listening to us, we are on air with Jay Warner Wallace, the author of uh, Cold Case Christianity and now God's Crime Scene. And again, we encourage you to get the book and to uh, read it and digest the material. Uh, I think it's a, p- a powerful tool and necessary tool in your evangelism. So uh, please go out and get it. So my next question deals with uh, the second law of thermodynamics. Can you please explain what? The Second Law states, and how that relates to uh, God's existence.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, part of the thing here is that we are looking at um, how do we, why do we believe, for an, even for an instant that we need to explain the origination of the universe. I mean, there are lots of folks for, for generations and centuries and centuries until the last century um, believed that this universe had no reason to be explained right. because it was eternal. It has always been here. It's, uh, as you know, uh, some folks have famously said in the past, it's all that ever is, all that ever was, all that ever will be. And so the question becomes, well, is that really, is that true? Uh, or, because if it's if it's true, then there's no reason for us to spend a lot of time um, kind of looking for a cause of a universe that could really be unconstitutional Cause because it's eternal. Now, there are several pieces of evidence and very different disciplines that all point to one reality that we are in a universe that is a caused universe, that it has a beginning. And so there are very different kinds of evidence that point to this. One of these is the second law of thermodynamics. It's, it basically, it's, it's about a quantity of energy in a closed, isolated system, that any um, quantity of energy in a closed system, like the universe itself, it remains the same, but the amount of usable energy deteriorates gradually over time. Now, that, that really helps us, because in other words, let's put it this way. Uh, usable energy eventually deteriorates. We know this from our own practical experience. We learn about it in high school, but we also see it in our lives. We would live eternally if not for the second law of thermodynamics. Things move from order to disorder, from usable energy to arise in what we call entropy, which is the kind of chaos and unusable energy. And, and we see this all the time. Now, why does this point set something powerful for us as believers? Well, because of this. If you think about it, if you walked into a room tomorrow, And you were the first person in the room. You knew you were the first person in the room. But when you got in the room, you saw a little wind-up, say, police car toy that's running around the room in a circle. Well, the second thing you're going to look for after seeing that police car Is for the person who wound it up because you know if it's a wind-up toy, it hasn't been running overnight. There's no toy that runs that long. It's on a fixed amount of usable energy. It is unwinding, and because it's still moving around the room in front of you, it's reasonable for you to look for the winder because it couldn't have been that long ago that that winder would have wound it because it still has energy in it. And so the same thing is happening here. We're in a universe that appears to have some wind left in it it 's winding down toward a cold heat death but but the point is it has wind left in it now, and so that tells us that we should be looking for a, a, a something that has at one point we know for sh- something for sure at some point in the past it had it was very tightly wound and it is now winding out winding down and if the universe was eternally old and had no beginning. Why would we expect there to be any wind left in this toy? There'd be no wind left, in it. we'd have been energy-less. But, of course, the fact that we still have some usable energy that is winding out is because it points to a beginning in which not too long ago, in which we had a lot of uh, highly-wound universe, in essence. So that analogy, although it's not perfect, gives you an idea of why the second law of thermodynamics does point to a universe that has a beginning. And you know why that's important, because in the end, if the universe is not eternal, and it has a beginning, well, then all of us are looking for what would have caused this, because that principle of causality says that anything that has a beginning has a beginner, has something that caused it. So the question then is, well, what would cause this universe? What well, could be powerful enough, and of course, if it caused the universe, if it brought all space, time, and matter into being, this thing we're looking for is an eternal uncaused first cause of all space, time, and matter. And by the way, even atheists are looking for the eternal uncaused first cause. They might propose that it's a quantum environment or it's a multiverse generator, but they're also proposing that it's an eternal uncaused first cause. But we also know that that thing is going to be spaceless, timeless, atemporal, because those are the very things that this thing creates. So what could be eternal all-powerful, spaceless, timeless, atemporal, and and, and, and actually, I think in some ways, we're looking for either a personal or an impersonal first cause. So you see how, even with the very first piece of evidence, we're forcing ourselves outside the room of the natural universe and looking for some first cause that has certain characteristics. And already, and by the way, even the atheist physicists now are looking for something outside the natural universe that's either going to be a multiverse generator of some sort or a quantum environment of physics that somehow creates the universe in any case they have already stepped outside the room for an explanation and that I give all of us pause Because we're really looking for something that's outside the room, and the only thing that separates us really from our atheist friends on this regard is, is that first cause an impersonal law of physics of some sort, or is it a personal being? So that's why I think it's so helpful to take this step-by-step approach in describing the first cause.
1: You also mentioned in the book about uh, the fine-tuning of the universe. And I especially like the part about the bacterial flagellum. Can you touch on that? I I, I, I thought that uh, that portion of the book was just excellent in buttressing your point about uh, someone uh, who we know is God, as Christians, uh, intentionally creating something on a complex level where uh, it couldn't be by random chance.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right, because what happens here is that we, it's it's pretty much stipulated by believers and non-believers alike, that that the biological systems, biological organisms have the appearance of design, and even at Dawkins, Pardon me, Richard Dawkins, who is a very committed atheist evolutionist, kind of says, well, yeah, I agree that all of biology is an attempt to describe or account for the appearance of design. Of course, he would reject that there's a designer, but everyone recognizes, boy, this stuff sure appears to be designed. And the, kind of the icon of all of biological design features has become this little motor that drives bacteria called a bacterial flagellum. And this bacterial flagellum, uh, it looks an awful lot like a rotary engine that you see in other machines that we all know our designs. Matter of fact, we didn't even discover the bacterial flagellum until the late '70s. And when we discovered it, we you know we were already building uh, similar uh, rotary-type engines on our own. And now we discover one that looks a lot like ours, but it's in biological structure of the bacteria. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, it's got 40 proteins that come together to build this machine. All 40 proteins have to be in place at once in order for the machine to work. If evolution is going to get us there, it has to get us there step by step over a long period of time, and each step has to provide something that benefits the bacteria so that it'll be retained for the next generation. So you need to figure out how that two-protein machine, what did it do? How did it survive? The three-protein machine, what did it do? How did it survive? And you've got to go up that pathway from zero to 40. So this is one thing that uh, Michael Behe, the the biochemist from, you know, Lehigh University said, hey, this sign of, of irreducible complexity where you have to have 40 things all together at once is a sure sign of design. I've tried to take it one step further. I actually think, you know, the reason why we have so many illustrations in this book is because I spent so many years as a designer before I became a police officer. Mm. And so I've, you know, nine years of art school. What does it do for you? It gets you a <laughs> chance to illustrate your book. That's about it. But, but, uh, but in the end, I started to look at my own design, um, you know, uh, illustrations, the artwork, the buildings. I was an architecture, so the buildings I had designed, and I said, okay, what is it about these pieces of art that demonstrate the need for an artist or the best explanation being an artist. What are the actual attributes of design that we take for granted that exist that help us to think through uh, and identify something as a designed object? I actually think there are eight things. Now, I'm not going to go through all this with you right now, but you saw in the book, I build a case for these eight features that are commonly associated with Design and I show how this is apparent even in a bird, uh, a, uh, like a, a bird's nest. Mm-hmm. When you see a bird's nest perfectly formed in a tree, you don't assume it just grew in the tree that way. Right. It's because it can. It actually it demonstrates so many of these eight attributes. And by the way, it only demonstrates maybe five of them or six of them. So you don't need all eight to be demonstrated to know that it's been designed. Well, mm-hmm. the bacterial flagellum, I think, actually contains all eight attributes. Mm-hmm. We would never. Re- other designed objects that demonstrate these eight attributes why in the world so what I try to do in this book is show you why I think that's an affirmative case for the involvement of a designer but even better yet I go through all the unnaturalistic explanations for how you might get that little bacterial flagellum those are efforts to stay inside the room of the universe to explain it and I show you why those simply don't work. Right. So not only do you have bad explanations from inside the room, you have the most reasonable inference of a designer outside the room. And I think that's the kind of combination we're looking for. When I'm working at a crime scene, I need to know, do I have no good reason to believe this is a suicide? Because the evidence in the room is not sufficient to support that. Mm. And also, do I have good reason to know I need to go outside the room for a suspect? It's the combination of those two things that's very powerful.
1: Brother Wallace, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we certainly have been helped by this uh, interview and this dialogue, and we pray that we get another opportunity to talk to you and even meet with you soon. So thank you for doing the show.
2: Well, I can tell you you're doing important work, and I'm just glad to be a small part of it.
1: Thank you, and we'll be in touch. Okay, thanks so much. That was Brother J. Warner Wallace. Uh, author and contributor to Dateline. If you've ever seen the Dateline shows uh, where they're dealing with crime scene investigation, he's one of the consultant, and he, he's been on the show a few times, uh, and I believe he still works with them. Uh, but in any case, uh, he is a Christian author, and I believe his publications are very necessary and uh, beneficial to God's church. So please get his book, God's Crime Scene. It has a lot of scientific data that will help we as Christians witness to those in our lives that may be coming from a naturalistic paradigm. Those individuals who claim that God did not create the universe, uh, but we got here through random selection. So in any case, uh, we pray that you've been edified by this episode of Sound Reasoning. And as always, please help us to continue to train Christians in sound doctrine. We need your financial support. Thank you so much for listening to Sound Reasoning. And may God continue to bless you and your family as we endeavor to do for the truth what so many other people do for a lie.
0: That's srministries.org. Listen again next week at this same time, and remember, Titus 1, nine says, Hold firm to the trustworthy messages has been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Sound Reasoning Ministries, srministries.org.
2: Have you ever attempted to read the entire Bible? Did you do it, or did you only make it part way?